Numbers 21. So the other day, speaking of Reese's Cups, <laughs> awkward transition, wasn't it? The other day, Laura and I started watching a documentary called Fed Up. And I think it's six, seven years old now, so you may have seen it. It's actually about the, the dangers of sugar addiction in this country, about sugar and its harmful effects on our bodies, on who we are, and yet how the food industry is actually loading our foods with sugar in order to addict us, in order to keep us coming back and spending money. Um, that, that, that loading down with sugar has resulted in skyrocketing obesity, heart disease, diabetes, and shockingly, even death. I'm going to be honest. I was watching that, and I believed what they said, and it totally ruined the big bowl of bluebell ice cream I had in my hand. <laughs> I actually was doing that. I was eating ice cream while watching it, and it, there was something about it as I just didn't enjoy it. I knew what they were saying was true, and the ice cream just kind of lost its flavor. What was sweet almost became bitter. And what's something I would have always enjoyed, I found myself not wanting it. I just finished the bowl because it seemed like being a good steward of something God had blessed me with. I didn't even want it. And yet, as I thought back on that night, I was thinking about the text for today and thinking... God, do the same thing here. Do the same thing here in Numbers 21 where these, these sins that we've been fine to live with, these things we've been fine to enjoy in this world that we knew were not good for us, that we knew may even bring, be bringing spiritual death into our life, take away any enjoyment we have in them. Take away anything that we found sweet and just make it bitter for us. Lord, take this text and may, make us see our sin the way he does. And so why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask that he would do that work in us this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that we can come to you not as those needing to or having to earn your favor, to earn forgiveness. You have given us everything we need through Jesus Christ, even as that Ephesians text said earlier, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And I pray that now you would turn our eyes to him in a way that does make the things of this world, the treasures of this world, the sweets of this world, bitter. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters over at First United Methodist this morning as they have a big decision in front of them. Lord, give them wisdom, give them clarity, give them a desire for everything that you are for them and are calling them to be, and Lord, may they make a decision that honors you. Lord, be glorified over there, we pray, and bring good to them. Father, I pray for the city. Lord, we are in need of awakening, of reviving of the joy of salvation. The city needs it. They need to see Christ. And these churches, our church needs it. The city needs to see Christ in us, at work in us, at work through us. And so, Lord, even today, 
May that be the case. Restore in us joy in our salvation. And for those of us here who do not know Christ yet, who still think it's about them and their work and their effort, what they do, what they don't do, show them Jesus this morning, that he is the lamb who was slain for their sins. He is the way to you, and there is no other means by which we can be made right. So, Lord, as your gospel and as your word is preached, we pray that your son would be honored and your spirit would move. Where else are we going to go? You alone have the word of life. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. I've got three points for you today because I know you like three points, and here they are. It's kind of become a joke now, doesn't it, when I, do, when I do actually do three points. Here they are. Point number one, the goal of sin. The goal of sin. Point number two, the goodness of serpents. The goodness of serpents. And point number three, the God of salvation. So it's the goodness, uh, I'm sorry, the goal of sin, the goodness of serpents, and the God of salvation. Let's read our text together starting at Numbers chapter 21, and we will be at verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Atherim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Last week, we were in the book of Exodus, and we saw how the Lord used the death of the firstborn son to bring his own children out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt, to freedom. And he takes them out of this place that they had known for over 400 years, and he's working them toward the promised land, to the land of Canaan. Now, remember what all they had seen. They had seen plague after plague, dismantling, dishonoring, destroying the gods of Egypt. And those plagues culminated with the final plague, the Passover, the death of the firstborn son. And this brought about their freedom. Well, on their way out, they are leaving Egypt, this massive group of Israelites. And they come to the Red Sea only to look back and see Egypt and Pharaoh, their king, chasing after them. 
So the Lord parts the Red Sea, this entire sea, he parts so that they can walk through on dry ground. And then the Lord brings the sea back together just as their pursuers, this foreign army, is chasing them to destroy them. This is what Israel had seen. Plague after plague, power after power, they get into the desert and God provides water flowing out of rocks. God provides food, bread forming up from the ground, quail coming down from heaven. They see power after power, but also kindness after kindness in their own lives. And yet regularly, how do we see Israel respond? Like this, grumbling, complaining, fighting, rebelling talking about how their lives were actually better in slavery in, in Egypt than they were being with God. That they were better in chains than they were with the Lord. In Numbers 11, they come, uh, they, they, they come to complain because they have no meat. And so they start talking about how great the fish was in Egypt. And how they used to sit around the pots that quite possibly they were chained to. And the meat was so good there. In chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron come up against Moses because they say, we don't need a mediator. We don't need somebody between God and us. We can come to him ourselves. In chapter 14, they finally come to the edge of the promised land and they send 12 spies in to view the land and the spies come back and they're talking about how incredible the food in, in Canaan is. That it is a land flowing with milk and with honey. They even bring a cluster of grapes back and two guys have to hold it on a pole between them because it reaches all the way to the ground. It's just awesome. And yet that's not the only thing they say is awesome. They also say, but here's the problem. The people are awesome too. They're tall. They're big. They're scary. And so 10 of these 12 spies say, we can't do this. We can't win this battle. We can't defeat those people. And only two of them, which were who? Joshua and Caleb. So if anyone in here is named Joshua or Caleb, great names. Any Judas? No one? That's why, that's why that is. There's a reason for that. And no matter how much Joshua and Caleb say, let's go, let's go. Don't you remember what God has done? Don't you remember the plagues? Don't you remember the sea? Don't you remember the power, the kindness he's shown us? No matter what they say, they will not listen. Instead, they turn on them and even seek to put Moses and Aaron to death because they say, you brought us here to kill us. Are these not the most self-centered, entitled slaves you've ever seen? And yet that's who they are. And God responds to their lack of trust by turning them away from the promised land to take them back toward the Red Sea. Why? Because he says this entire generation will die and the next generation will see the promised land. We come to chapter 21, which is where we are today, and they've been attacked by a Canaanite king this king of Arid, and he takes some of them captive. So they cry out to God once again, and they vow to him that if you will give these people into our hand, we will destroy them completely. We will put all of them to death. We will destroy the city. Now understand something. This is how they were going to take Canaan. 
The promised land, the land promised to the people of God, was full of people. And it was full of evil people. And so you see the Lord calling his people to wipe out these territories, to put to death, to destruction these cities. Because on one hand, this is how it frees it up for his people. But on the other hand, this is how God brought judgment on wicked nations. That he will send, he will stir up nations against other nations for their destruction because of their sin. Sometimes he uses Israel for this purpose. So as Israel is asking God to grant this request, that's what he does. He heeds their voice and he gives the Canaanites into their hands and they destroy this city completely. Think about it. They ask God for victory and he gives it. For a battle that, that, they, that they win. And he gives it. They saw it. They experienced it. They were there. They watched him work. Now you would think if that's what just happened, that they would be riding kind of this high of excitement, right? That they would see God work and they'd say, oh, isn't this amazing that God fights our battles for us? I... I look at it and I wonder if they were. It doesn't say they were, but I don't know if it has to. And I don't know if it has to for this reason. Think about your own life. Have you ever been at a place where you see God do something incredible? And by the next day, you are knowingly, willfully sinning against him, knowing what you're doing is rebellious. Have you been there? Yeah. Were they so excited about this victory? Possibly. I mean, think about, think about uh, uh, the, the, the battle with the, the Baal worshipers, the 450 prophets of Baal and Elijah. You see Elijah call down fire from heaven and destroy the enemies of God. What's he doing the next day? He's running for his life terrified. So we read about this and we think, man, this is kind of interesting that you go straight from this incredible victory to complaining. And it is interesting. It's interesting when they do it. And it's interesting when we do it. We do the same thing. We're just like this. Here they are on Mount Hor and they set out by way of the sea. Now notice it says they're going back toward the Red Sea. Why? Because they are being led away from the promised land because of their rebellion with the 12 spies, right? And on the way, notice what happens. The people become impatient. And in their impatience, they grumble against God and against Moses. And the question they say is this. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food here. There's no water here, and we loathe, we hate, despise this worthless food. Isn't it interesting that they ask God for strength, for grace to destroy this Canaanite nation, this pagan nation, to them, these sinful, idolatrous people, and that God grants that? Think about why, in part, did they want to destroy these Canaanites? Because they knew that they were evil. They would have looked at this Canaanite nation and said, these people are sinful, they are evil, God. Grant us grace to destroy them, to devote them to destruction. But notice what they haven't devoted to destruction. It's their own sin. 
that they're happy to wipe off this nation because they're sinful, but they're also happy to continue living in sin themselves. They do this thing, and it's, it's something that we do also. There seems to be here this, this, this ease to looking at the sin of others and saying, they need to be destroyed for that. They need to be wiped off because look at the way they live. It's what sin does in our life. It seeks to take the focus of evil off of where it is right here and say, look how terrible those people are. Look how awful those people are. Those people are sinners. Those people are wicked. Those people are evil. And let's be honest, in large part, yeah, they are. But so are these people. We are also. This is what sin does to us. It deceives. We look at ourselves and say, well, at least I'm not that person. At least I'm not doing what that person is doing. Or we look at our own sin and we say, well, at least I'm not doing big things. At least I'm not committing the big sins. God's fine with me because I haven't killed anyone today. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. You've heard me talk about it before. If you've never read Jerry Bridges, you should. Respectable Sins. These sins right here would have made the list. It's the sins that that Israel is doing right here. Impatience, grumbling, ingratitude. This was the pattern of Israel over and over and over. They continually return to this. But let's be honest, this is the way it works in us too. How many of you, you wake up and you're suddenly struggling with a new sin you've never struggled with? It's rare, isn't it? But how many of you, you look at your own life and you continually find yourself returning to that same sin... That same temptation, that same pride, whatever it may be that you've always had. That you look at yourself and you say, it's still there? Look, we're we're prone to return to regular sin in our own life. There's a consistency in the way that we live usually. Israel was like this, and you and I are like this. But this is the goal of sin right here, to keep you from God. The goal of sin is to keep you from God, to keep you from seeing your need of forgiveness and your need of righteousness and of salvation. Its its goal is to keep us focusing on the sin of others or on the lightness of our own sin. It makes us say, well, I'm better than them. I'm better than most. I don't do the big ones. We treat God as if He came down to earth to save us by taking a, a little scalpel maybe and saying, you know what, we're pretty good, but you got a little cancer on your elbow. You got a little something that if I can just scrape that off, you'll be fine. Your only issue is just a little skin issue, that's all. But what does the Bible say? No, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That we don't need a skin graft, we need a heart transplant. We need to be made completely new for God to take out our heart of stone, put in us a heart of flesh that loves what he loves and that beats for him, right? Look at these sins. Let's just take some time on this. 
impatience. Any of you struggle with that? I don't like where I am. I don't like my struggles. I don't have time for that. I know where I want to be and I'm where I should be, but God hasn't brought me there yet. And so we grumble. God doesn't know what he's doing. He says he's good, but he's not. I was happier before I became a Christian. Life was more fulfilling, more fun. I should have more. I deserve more. Why does that person have and I don't? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? At least there, there were, were, were meat pots and vegetables. Ingratitude. But here, there's no water. Here, there is no food, and we hate this food. There is no food, and we hate it. Parents may understand that. You go to the store and you buy $300 of groceries. What, what was last year $300 of groceries? And this year it's $47,000 worth of groceries. And you come in and you take time, you unload it all, and you put it all in the pantry. You make it look nice and your kids come in and they look around at your $47,000 worth of groceries and they say, there's nothing to eat. You say, there's food everywhere. You say, but we hate this food. Well, which one is it? Is there food or is there not food? It's like the modern atheism. There is no God and we hate him. Well, you can't have both. Which one is it? Every day, food came from heaven. Every place they went, God was providing water from places that water usually didn't come from. There was food. There was water. And yet, in their sin, in their impatience, in their grumbling, they said, no, there's not. But we don't like this. And they couldn't be thankful. While in Atlanta, we had Paul Tripp come. Another guy that I would say, if you've never read anything from Paul Tripp, you should. And he came to speak at a marriage conference. And I will never forget what he did with Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. He, let me read it to you first. He said this. Hebrews 3.12 says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But this is how he did it. He said, this is what's happening in this text. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart that causes you to fall away from the living God. And what he's saying there is, that verse right there is a progression in your life. That what does it lead to? That evil in your life, sin in your life, leads to an unbelieving heart, which leads you to falling away, running away from the living God. That there's progression to it. What does sin do? It's seeking to undo what God is doing. It's seeking to blind you from what God has provided for you. It's seeking to bring misery where joy is to be found. To bring doubt and confusion to the child of God. So listen, take care. Take care, brothers and sisters. Watch out for evil in your own heart. Don't rank sin as if some doesn't matter. Rather, take 
every thought captive. Understand something. Your impatient thoughts matter. Take them captive. Your grumbling words matter. Be done with them. Ingratitude is a deadly sin, so put it to death. This was the sin that was rampant in Israel, and God responds with what we could call a confusing kindness, which brings us to the point, uh, the second point, the goodness of serpents. I like that one. Some of you say the only good snake is a a dead snake. I'm pretty sure I told a snake story here like my first week here, and I think Deb Lofton's still mad at me about it. So if you're here, Deb, I'm telling another snake story if you need. The only good snake is a dead snake. But that can't be. Because right here, God brings snakes. And these snakes are goodness in the life of the people. He sends them exactly what they need. And these aren't just regular snakes, right? These are called fiery serpents. Isn't God good? These fiery serpents, they bit, so many, they bit people so that many of them died. What he's doing here, he's sending the chemotherapy of burning snakes so that the cancer that will truly destroy them is actually dealt with. So that what they will see is that it is their sin, that this sin that they've been okay to live with, this impatience, this grumbling, this ingratitude, that that's the danger, that that's the problem, that's the issue. And so God in his love, he sends serpents. Fiery, poisonous, deadly serpents. And it bites them. And it bites them and many people die from it. But what's the other result? What's the other thing that happens because these serpents are biting people? Verse 7, the people come to Moses and they say, We've sinned. We've sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Recognize what what happens here, that that's the point. These snakes come, these serpents are sent among Israel, not for their destruction, but for their deliverance. Not so that they will fall away and just die, but so that they will recognize their sin and they will repent of it. So that they will return to God in confession and in faith. So that they come and they ask Moses to pray to the Lord that he would take the serpents away. And God in his continued kindness, he does what? He answers their prayer with the word, no. I won't do it. The serpents stay. Anybody feel that? For you the answer may be the same, no. The cancer stays. The sin struggles remain. The debt continues. The marital issues, not yet. Look, there are so many, there are so many sin struggles. I don't know that a Baptist pastor is supposed to confess this. There are so many sin struggles in here and in here that I have dealt with for so long, for years. And for years, I've asked the Lord, just take them away. Just remove them. 
And yet I also recognize this, that it is those thorns right there that have consistently made me rely on Christ over the decades. That if I didn't have them, gosh, I'd be way worse than I am. You couldn't even handle that. That I would be prideful more than I am. That I would look at other people's sin and say, at least I'm not that guy. At least I don't struggle like that. But no, this has caused me to consistently look at myself and just say, man, I need Jesus. Man, I need a Savior. I need Christ. Some of you, it's the same for you. You've grown tired of decade of decade of what we could call the Britney Spears prayer. Oops, God, I did it again. Oh, sorry, it wasn't meant to be that funny. That I keep coming back to you having to confess the same thing. Can't you just take it away? Can't you just take this out of my life? And he says, no, no, no. That serpent's going to remain. Because it's that right there, that thorn right there, that struggle right there that is consistently bringing you right here to me. And without it, you wouldn't be here. How is it the kindness of the Lord and these serpents Because it is this that God is using to show them that he is who they need. They don't need Egypt. They don't need meat pots. They don't need water. They need him. And they need him to provide their every need. Look, I don't even have to go into detail when talking about the biting of serpents, of fire, and of poison. Because we get that. We get what it's like to live in a world like that. So what was it they were supposed to do when they did this? What was the cure? Well, God says, take your eyes and look to the serpent that is on the pole and you will live. That God is telling them, you will be bitten. It will happen. The serpents will be all around you. But when you are, look and live. Look at the curse hanging on that pole. Look at the judgment hanging on that pole. Don't do anything. Just look and you will live. So what do you and I do? It's the same thing. We look to the curse hanging on the pole. We look to the judgment hanging on the tree. Look and you will live. This isn't just numbers that talks like this. This is how the whole Bible talks. This is how the New Testament describes what Jesus, the Son of God, did. That Jesus himself became sin. He became the sinner in our place, and he was hung on a cross because of it. That on that cross, on that pole, he not only took our sin, he took the judgment it deserved. It says this, The Bible says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And that's what Jesus did. He went on to that tree and became the curse for us. The serpent on the pole is just pointing us to that. It's pointing us to the Christ on the tree. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever looks to him, whoever believes in him, will have eternal life. That's John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. How does that follow up with verse 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So what do you do 
What do you do in the midst of fiery serpents, in the midst of a fallen world? You look to him and live. What do you do when you see sin in your life? Big things or when you see this ingratitude, this impatience, this grumbling, these things that we've for some reason become okay to live with. What do you do when you see them? You look to Christ and live. You come to him in confession and in faith. There's an incredible hymn written by John Newton. Somebody put a John Newton article on my desk this week. He's a guy that wrote Amazing Grace. But he wrote a lot of other things too. I want to read this to you. It's a hymn he wrote called, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. Anybody ever asked the Lord for that? Anybody want that? That you want to become more faithful, more obedient, more holy, more mature, more loving, more kind? You want to be used by him? Are you asking him for it? Because oftentimes, you know what he does? He answers those prayers with serpents. Listen to what John Newton wrote, and we'll close with this. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed. He humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break the schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thine all in me. Friends, look to Christ. Look to Christ. You want to leave and someone says, what was the sermon about? Just give them three words. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. If you've never done that, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, do it now. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look to Christ and let's walk.